Hey, true crimies. I'm Kayla. And I'm Alicia, Kayla's mom. And you are listening to True Crime Exposed. Welcome to our show. Today we are going to jump right into it. I'm not going to do a big intro because this episode is a long one. Are you ready for today's case? Okay, guys, we are finally wrapping it up. Today we are on our fourth and final episode on the Daybell case. This has been an insane journey. We dug so deep. This story has consumed my life for the last month and probably yours too. Now, we ended part three with the murder of Charles Vallow. What we know at this point is that Charles entered the home of his estranged wife, Lori Vallow, in Arizona. She was living here with the kids while Charles lived elsewhere after he had discovered Lori's ongoing affair with Chad Daybell. Minutes after entering the home, Charles is shot by Lori's brother, Alex Cox. Alex shoots Charles once, knocking Charles to the ground where he lays in a pool of his own blood, while Alex walks up to him and shoots him a second time while standing above him. And then Alex waits in the home with Charles for more than 40 minutes while Lori drives off with her kids in the rental car that Charles had drove over there. During their separation, Charles had moved back over to Texas, where him and Lori met and lived there before going to Arizona. So when Charles flew in that week to see JJ, he had to get a rental car. And yes, you heard that right. After her brother shoots Charles to death, it's Charles's rental car that Lori uses to then take JJ to school. It's like, why would you even take your kid to school? I know, after their dad was just shot literally dead in their home. Yeah. So weird. And you take his car. That is very weird behavior. I am not exactly sure why the cops didn't think that was weird. Besides, she's just a big, huge manipulator. I know. I I, I don't understand how they believed her. It's like so obvious. But again, I guess we have the hindsight. But still, there's there's a lot of red flags here. Now, during that 40-minute wait before Alex calls 911, he, of course, is not helping Charles. He's just letting him bleed out. And then Alex calls Lori before finally deciding to call 911. When the dispatcher answers, Alex calmly tells her that he shot his brother-in-law just minutes ago, which we know is a lie since it's been more than 40 minutes since Charles was shot. But Alex goes on to say that it was an act of self-defense. And when asked if Charles is breathing, Alex replies, I can't tell. So then he is asked if he will go over and check. And Alex chipperly says, sure. After Alex lets the dispatcher know that Charles is not breathing, she asks him if he would like to start CPR. But Alex tells her, no, nope, I don't know how to do that. And when the dispatcher lets Alex know that she will be walking him through it, Alex reluctantly agrees. Although police later on will state that they never actually believed that Alex did do CPR on Charles Vallow. 
When emergency responders arrive, they rush inside to find 62-year-old Charles Vallow dead on the floor of the home. Charles had suffered two gunshots. The shooter, Alex Cox, was 51 years old at the time of the shooting, and once he comes outside to talk with officers, he can be seen on body cam footage dabbing a rag at a fairly small cut on the back of his head. This same body cam footage shows glimpses inside the home, in the room where officers discover Charles's body. It seems strange because the home looks empty. There's no furniture, no pictures. It's just a big empty room which Lori had just moved into this rental weeks earlier, so this could be the explanation. And as the conversation between Alex and an officer gets underway, Alex takes a seat on the curb outside of the home. And the officer asks, what happened today? How did it get to this point? And Alex is like, well, Charles just came at me with a bat. He came to my sister's house to pick his son up for school, but he just started acting crazy. Alex continues on to let the officer know that Charles only showed up at the home maybe 10 minutes earlier, which again, we know is a lie because Alex waited about 43 minutes to even call 911 after shooting Charles. But officers in this moment don't know that yet. Alex goes on to explain that Charles and Lori started arguing when Alex jumped in, telling Charles not to talk to his sister like that. This is when Alex says that Charles tells him to back off, before ultimately stealing a baseball bat out of the hands of Lori's daughter, Tylee Ryan. Alex says that this is when things got really heated, because Charles came at him with the bat, striking Alex in the back of the head. And this is why Alex had that cut he keeps dabbing at. At this point, Alex says he was scared. So he walked into the guest room he was staying in and grabs a gun out of his suitcase. When Alex returns to the area of the home that Charles is in, he says that he told Charles to put the bat down. But instead, Charles starts coming at him. So of course, Alex says he had no choice except to shoot at Charles. During the telling of this story, Alex is totally calm. There's no emotion behind the fact that he just murdered his brother-in-law, a man who has been his family for almost 15 years. Officers even ask Alex if he normally has a good relationship with this guy. And Alex is like, yeah, I do. But somehow he is just completely unbothered by the death of Charles Vallow. And while Alex is relaying all of this information to an officer, Lori and Tylee drive up after dropping JJ off at school. The officer that is talking with Alex asks Lori and Tylee to wait on the other side of the road, and he will be over shortly. Once the officer makes his way over to Lori and Tylee, he asks how long they have lived in this home. And Lori says, quote, like three weeks. That's why the neighbors don't know us very well. We're like, hi, neighbors. Sorry. And she's like, ha, 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 ha. Oh, I'm flirting with you. Hi, neighbors. <laughs> I'm so sorry. Oh, she's like, so sorry annoying. we shot someone over here. I know. She had no I hate her. remorse whatsoever. None. None. Like, she's not even pretending to. No. And she's that's the crying. thing. Did the officers not think that was weird? Or was she just so far up their asses that <laughs> they couldn't tell? Literally. It blows my mind because I feel like anyone 
like usually you'd hear in a case like this like oh yeah that struck me as weird like she wasn't acting right yeah but as we'll see initially they do rule it as self-defense yep i don't know what they were thinking i'm telling you she was flirty with them (laughs) and they believed her it's so weird I don't understand her. I don't even know how to say it. Like the way she was acting was not how somebody would act if their ex-husband just died. You would be devastated whether you're with the person or not. You knew them. You've been with them. I mean, they weren't even divorced at this time. They had been married for almost 15 years. Oh, yeah. She just thought it was funny. She just kept laughing. (laughs) It makes me mad. Yeah. Now, soon after this, Lori, Alex, and Tylee find themselves at the police station so that they can all be interviewed separately. And all three of them do tell a similar story about that morning. And although there were small discrepancies, nothing huge jumped out to investigators that initially made them weary. The officer that sits down with Lori asks her to start off the story from where she thinks it will make the most sense and take her through the events that led up to Charles being shot. With this, Lori decides to start a couple months back, around February of 2019, when she left to Hawaii with Tylee for an extended period of time after Charles filed for divorce. When Lori and Tylee left to Hawaii, JJ was left with Charles, who took him to Texas while waiting to hear from Lori. At that time, Charles didn't even know where Lori and Tylee were. So when Lori returned a couple months later, Charles couldn't do anything except for cry. He had missed her so much, and when he saw her, he just wanted to help bring her back to reality. He wanted to keep working on their marriage, and Lori agreed. And that was the last time that Lori and Charles would get back together before ultimately calling it quits shortly before Charles is fatally shot that July morning. But while Lori is relaying this story to the officer interviewing her, she tells a different version of the story, painting herself as the victim, of course. And I don't believe anything Lori says, but let's get into what Lori states during the interview. So she starts by saying that Charles had recently found this rental for Lori and the kids there in Arizona once they decided to really call it quits and separate for a final time. But she makes sure to add in that Charles said the house was for Lori and JJ, not Tylee. Quote, because he's all about JJ. He's never about Tylee, of course, because we adopted him together. He's his great nephew. We adopted him as a baby. End quote. Lori explains that Charles would just travel down to see the kids because he travels all the time for work anyways. He is used to the back-and-forth life. But Lori says that their separation had not been easy because Charles was always threatening her. Now, when the officer is like, okay, can you give me an example of how he threatens you and like the threats that he would send to you? Lori can't come up with any answers. She basically skirts around the question until she finally just tells this officer that she'd have to read the text for herself to understand. Quote, he doesn't want a divorce, but I don't like him and I don't want to deal with him. End quote. And then instead of mentioning how she took Tylee and ran off to Hawaii for months, leaving JJ behind, Lori says that Charles was the one who took off with JJ to Texas. 
She never says she left to Hawaii, but she goes on to explain how she didn't file anything against Charles when he took JJ because, you know, she's such a good person who would never keep someone's child from them. So Lori was shocked when Charles then files a petition for full custody. Quote, It said I'm only going to get supervised visits because I'm crazy and blah, blah, blah. End quote. Lori explains her absence from JJ over those couple months as being because of this petition. She needed Charles to see how hard it was to take care of JJ alone with all of his special needs. And she says that her plan worked because after 30 days, Charles was begging her to come back and help with JJ because she thinks he couldn't handle it. This is when Lori returns from Hawaii. Although while she's telling this story, she never actually mentions that she was in Hawaii this whole time to police. She just says this is when she moved with Charles to Houston to try and work things out one last time. She says that she made this sacrifice for her family, of course, not for herself. Now, Lori brings the officer to the couple's final separation. Lori says at this time, Charles is still traveling for work. And she says for his work, he travels and works with teachers and their retirement plans. Quote, it kind of just gives him freedom so that he doesn't have to stay home and take care of special needs children. It's like an excuse. So I've done that by myself for the last seven years. End quote. So Lori tells the officer that night before Charles was shot... He told her that he was coming to Arizona to see JJ and that he would pick him up in the morning for school. Lori says that she told Charles he had to stay in a hotel and that he couldn't take JJ to the hotel because JJ was already struggling with being outside of his normal routine with all the changes between the couple. She tells the officer that JJ was a nightmare, always on the floor, hitting stuff, hitting everything. Later on in the same interview, Lori reiterates that JJ was really hard for her to handle. And Lori goes on to say that she assumed Charles would bother her that night that he got into town, but that he surprisingly left her alone and that he only texted her once saying he would arrive at her home about 7.30 a.m. to pick JJ up for school. When Charles arrives, Lori claims that he comes up to the door and starts angrily banging on the front door. Lori tells the officer that she thinks to herself, oh great, here we go. Lori claims that JJ didn't want to go with Charles, which was making Charles mad. And Lori was just trying to help keep the situation calm. So she says that she suggested to Charles that he should just take JJ to Burger King for breakfast before dropping him off at school. Charles agrees and takes JJ outside, putting him into the backseat of their rental car parked in the driveway. At this moment, Charles realizes he left his phone inside. When he walks back into the home, he sees Lori on his phone and asks her to give it back to him. But Lori says no. She tells the officer that she wanted Charles to show her the texts that he had been sending to her brother, Adam. Quote, he was acting really weird, like he was plotting something against me. Like, I'm like, why are you even here? What did you come here for? He's been talking to my other brother. 
and my brother came into town that same time last night, and I haven't talked to my brother in a while, my other brother. And so he was texting him on the phone when he first got to my house, and I was like, why are you texting Adam? Do you talk to him? End quote. Now remember, we talked about this last episode. Adam and Charles were talking and trying to plan an intervention for Lori since they could both see that she was really losing her grip on reality. And once Charles found out about the affair and emailed Tammy, Chad told Lori that Adam and Charles were planning to kill her for her life insurance. This part of the interview almost makes me think she really believed Chad, that she really did think there was some sort of plot going on against her. She goes on to say that Charles had been acting weird to her because he blames her for their marriage ending. He blames her for her niece getting divorced, and he blamed her for her friend getting divorced. She says that Charles calls her a destroyer of families. True thing. I know, and he was right. But she says that Charles was just nuts, that he always goes nuts. Lori claims that Tylee is always mad at her for going back to him, but that it's, quote, really hard to take care of JJ, so I go back, end quote. Lori tells the officer that when she wouldn't return Charles's phone to him, he got really angry. This is when he grabbed her and starts yelling at her before Tylee finally comes out of her room holding a baseball bat and yelling at Charles to leave her mom alone. This is when she says that Charles takes the bat out of Tylee's hands and starts swinging it at all of them. Now Alex jumps into the confrontation and Tylee runs out to get into the car with JJ. After Charles allegedly hits Alex in the head with the bat, Lori walks into the kitchen while Alex walks into his room. And while Lori is in the kitchen, she hears the gunshots. So she runs back into the living room where she sees her husband laying on the floor, shot by her brother. In this moment of shock, Lori explains herself as going into mom mode. So she runs outside and gets into Charles's rental car that he had brought to pick up JJ. And she drives off in it, going to Burger King for breakfast and then dropping JJ off at school. Before they return home to the crime scene, Lori also makes a stop at Walgreens to buy Tylee some new flip-flops. Oh my gosh. Now in Alex's interview, he basically relays the same story. Except he says that there was no reason he was at Lori's that night. That he didn't even know Charles was coming over. And he was just there to hang out with Lori. But Lori told the cops that she was scared, right? So she had him stay. Yes, Lori contradicts that and says that she specifically asked Alex to come over because she suspected trouble with Charles. Mm -hmm. So that's one of those discrepancies. And then Alex also states that he shot Charles two times before Charles fell to the floor. The evidence at the crime scene would later on show that that second shot was done while Alex actually stood over top of Charles's body, who was already laying on the floor after the first shot. And while Tylee was interviewed, she wasn't quite as calm as her mom or her uncle were. Though she still didn't cry over the death of her stepdad, Charles, she seemed more shaken up, more nervous, but she relayed the same story as her mom. In my opinion, I do believe that Lori most likely told Tylee what to say. Exactly. I believe she coerced Tylee into telling the same story, 
I don't think being Lori's daughter was an easy role for Tylee. I feel so sad for Tylee because the whole time Tylee is sitting there remaining loyal to her mom and hiding her mom's demons from the world, Lori knows that Chad considered Tylee as a dark spirit. Remember, Chad had emailed Lori only two days after meeting her with that information. And as we can see with Charles, once you're deemed a bad spirit, your time on this earth is limited. Mm-hmm. And Tylee's aunt, Annie Cushing, remember, this is Joe Ryan's sister. We talked about her a bit last episode. Annie believes the same thing. She says, quote, I do wonder with Tylee if she was asked to toe the line to keep everyone out of prison, end quote. And a lot of people, including myself, believe that Tylee ultimately is killed because she might know too much. Well, yep, she had to lie for her mom. You know, you know, they all came up with that story. Yeah. And we know it's not true. Yeah. Like the whole thing about Charles taking the bat and him freaking out. Like none of that was true. He was scared of Lori and Alex. Yeah. Already. Now, once the interviews are over, Lori, Alex, and Tylee hop into the back seat of a patrol vehicle while an officer slips into the front seat to drive them home. Oh, I also, one more thing is I remember in that interview um, scene, I think it was on just this most recent dateline, but the police um, got Lori in contact with the victim's advocate people. So they thought Lori was the victim. She always is good at playing that role Mm -hmm. of a victim, and she convinced them that she was. Yeah, it's crazy. Now, this officer that was driving them home, he felt a heaviness in his chest knowing what happened to this family today, that they lost a husband, a brother-in-law, and a stepdad in a true tragedy. I mean, even though it was an act of self-defense, it had to be hard on them that this happened. But soon, that heaviness turns into confusion because they were just laughing in the back seat. They were making jokes. They were perfectly fine. And this officer would later on describe Lori as happy-go-lucky on the drive home. He got more uncomfortable as the drive continued, and he felt relief once he dropped Lori, Alex, and Tylee off back home. Their reaction to Charles' death just didn't feel right. And that evening, the strange behavior continued when Lori decided to have a pool party at her house, the same home that Charles had been killed in that very morning. We know this because a neighbor had called in a noise complaint saying that there was loud music coming from the pool party next door. Who was even there? I read somewhere that like her oldest son Colby went over, but that This is when he learned that Charles had been shot and killed. So he ended up leaving because he was uncomfortable. And then I read like one of her friends and like her friend's two kids went. Very weird. Yes. So the Chandler Police Department first rolls this incident as one of self-defense. But months later, when Lori's story blows up nationwide during the search for her missing children, they decide to investigate this incident a bit further. And they have now been able to determine that Lori and Alex's stories do not line up. Unfortunately, none of this was discovered before many more lives were taken. But we do know now that phone records put Charles showing up at Lori's home at 7.35 a.m. Phone records then show that Lori leaves the home at 7.49 a.m. 
And then we see her at 7.54 a.m. on the Burger King CCTV footage grabbing breakfast with JJ and Tylee. We know Charles was shot sometime in the 14 minutes between when he showed up and when Lori leaves. But Alex doesn't call the police until 8.36 a.m., saying that the shooting happened just minutes earlier and that Charles had showed up maybe 10 minutes before he called. As we can see from the phone records, this just isn't true. And that baseball bat that Charles allegedly took from Tylee was also tested for DNA and fingerprints. And there was no evidence that Charles had ever laid a hand on the bat. Charles was a semi-pro baseball player. Remember, he played in college as well. And it's not likely that if he did hit Alex with a bat, that Alex would have only received one small cut. Charles had the strength and the skill to do some real damage if he was defending himself with that bat. Now, remember Charles had two other sons from a previous marriage. So Lori needed to find a way to get the news to them. At this point, they're teenagers. And instead of making contact with Charles' sister or his ex-wife, the kid's mom, Lori decides she will just tell Charles' sons herself. So she sends one of them a text. Quote, Hi boys, I have very sad news. Your dad passed away yesterday. I'm working on making arrangements and I'll keep you informed with what's going on. I'm not sure how to handle things. Just want you to know that I love you and so did your dad. And then she puts a little heart emoji. End quote. That is just so weird. Like I cannot imagine just texting my stepkids if their dad died. That is insane. I mean, I wouldn't I wouldn't text him that. Hey guys, your dad died. Sorry. I can't imagine getting that text. So his kids are obviously shocked and the son replies, quote, Lori, what happened? Where is he and what happened? End quote. And Lori just texts back, quote, I'll call you when I can, bub. He's here in Arizona. End quote. And confusion races through this kid's mind as he rushes to text Lori back. Where in Arizona? When did this all happen? How's JJ doing? What funeral home is he at? But hours would pass by, and he just could not get a response from Lori. Yeah, it's like, can you give us the details? (laughs) You just said our dad died. But she didn't want them coming for a funeral. She didn't want them getting involved. So more hours would pass. He can't get a response from her. And he finally texts her and just says, quote, Lori, what the F happened? You can't just tell us our dad died and disappear. You're not too busy to just let us know he died and disappear. End quote. And Lori still doesn't respond. And so he sends another text. Lori, it's been three hours. You're not that busy. I don't care what you're doing. And finally, Lori finds the time to send back a quick message. Quote, I'm sorry you are so upset. I'm upset too. I'm trying to get JJ ready for bed. I'm waiting to hear back from the medical examiner to make sense out of all of this myself. Please be patient with me. It's a crushing situation all the way around. I'm still trying to process it too and what it means for JJ. End quote. Oh, she didn't want to tell him that her brother killed him? (laughs) I know. It's like you're waiting for the medical examiner to get back to you for what? Like, you know how he died. You know what happened. Exactly. (laughs) 
And Lori's explanation was not enough for Charles's son. So he says, when and where is the funeral? How did it all happen? I want an explanation. And the next day, he has to send two question marks two hours apart after being ignored by Lori yet again. Lori eventually replies, I'm still waiting, working on arrangements and sorting things out best I can. I'll let you know when I know. And he's annoyed at this point, saying, Why aren't you telling me what happened? I've asked numerous times. Just tell me. But then she still doesn't reply, so he just goes on to send more question marks the next day. But then two more days pass before he finally says, Okay, Lori, it's been three days. You let us know our father passed away over a text message. Three days and we haven't heard from anyone. The only information we have is one text from you saying he passed away. You disappear after that. We need any information you have. What happened? When did it happen? How did it happen? Where is he now? Are there any funeral plans? And can my brother and I be a part of it? We talked to him all the time and now he's gone. He was our dad and we loved him very much. We deserve answers. Also, why have you been the only one to contact us? We haven't heard from Colby or Tylee. I know they are affected too. I called Colby recently too, but he didn't answer. Is JJ safe? And what does he know? I need to be kept in the loop about all of this. This isn't a nonchalant topic that you can just throw a text and be done with. I mean, I would have gone out to Arizona. Oh my gosh. I know it's like... (laughs) They're just, like, sitting there, like, wait, what? Oh, I know. I'm surprised. They were actually very patient. I know. And they this is... waited for three days? Yeah. And this is how I think even Charles's sister finds out, because I guess Charles's son had called Kay Woodcock, his sister, and was like, what happened? Like, our dad died? Or maybe they had called her husband. I don't remember, but... They basically got in contact with them and they were freaking out. And she was like, what are you talking about? And that's how she ended up finding out, too. I mean, I wonder if they had. I I know Kay thought that Lori probably killed him because he oh, Charles yeah. kept telling her something happens to me. It's Lori. But I wonder if his sons thought thought that initially that she did it. I know. I wonder if he had been. I mean, his sons were older at this point, so. I'm sure it's a possibility that he was talking to them and telling them that things weren't good and, you know, that they were separating because of her reality being so disordered, distorted. Yeah. It's been multiple days and then Lori finally does respond again. She says, these are your dad's wishes. He and I discussed this a lot over the years that we have been together. My plan is to have him cremated as he wished and then take all five of you kids to Hawaii to spread his ashes. He did not want a funeral. He wants a celebration of his life. I've been overwhelmed, but I am going to try to start these arrangements today. JJ is doing good, but he does not know his daddy is gone. It's so tough because he doesn't really understand. He says daddy is in California working. I know how much he loves you boys and always has. I have a lot of things to do with the business and contacting people, and it's still all so difficult. Today, I'm trying to put up a memorial page on the Funeral Home website. I'll send you the link when I have it. I love you, and so does your dad. And Charles's son is still not buying into this. 
He says, I appreciate this information, but I will ask these questions again because I still haven't been given an answer. What happened? When did it happen? How did it happen? Where is he now? Is there a funeral? When is it? Who have you told about his death? Give me all the information you have. Please, my brother and I deserve to know. And Lori just leaves this text unanswered for four days. He sits there wondering what happened to his dad without any answers before finally giving up and saying to Lori, well, if you won't answer those questions, can we please have his watches and other stuff that he always talked about and had around? And Lori ignores literally all of his other questions and replies, of course, send me the address you want me to send your stuff to. Kay is supposed to come clean out the Houston house. I told her to let you guys have whatever you want first. Then she could give the rest away. I know he wanted you to have all that you want. Now, the son that was texting with Lori later on told East Idaho News, quote, My dad had a collection of watches, very fancy watches. He wore nice watches for years and years, so I thought she was going to send some of them to me. The package arrived and there were two cheap Timex watches you'd find at CVS. Anything that was worth money, we didn't get. I'm assuming she sold everything else, end quote. And in the same interview, he explains why he thinks Lori and Alex's story about Charles's death is a lie. Quote, I don't believe any of it. My dad was never verbally aggressive, never raised his voice, never physically threatened anyone or anything like that. He was very good at baseball. He played in college. So if he was going to defend himself, he wouldn't just tap an aluminum bat on someone's head in self-defense. The story just doesn't make any sense. End quote. And do you want to know what is so crazy about these text messages? I actually saw these text messages before this story was even big. Did you? No. Okay. The boy's mom, Cheryl Wheeler. This is Charles's second wife. She posted these texts on Facebook. I swear. I do not have sources that say this, but I remember long before this story broke, I was scrolling through Facebook and I saw this post that was kind of going viral. You know, it had a bunch of shares on it. So it popped up on my feed and it was a woman, Cheryl, who posted saying something about how her kid's stepmom sent them these texts about their father dying and that they were having a really hard time getting in touch with her and finding out information and basically just how screwed up she thought it was. And I, of course, clicked on these pictures of the text because I love reading texts between people on social media. And I swear to you guys, I read these messages. I distinctly remember thinking, Okay, that lady definitely killed her husband. Like, I didn't know anything about the story, but I read these texts and I thought they were so sketchy. I've always had a mind that jumps straight to true crime. And then, you know, that was just one day on Facebook. So I totally forgot about like these texts until the whole story broke and I came across them again later on in relation to this case. Oh, yeah. And then you remembered him. Yes. I want to know if anyone else remembers seeing these on Facebook because I know she posted them on there. (laughs) It's just crazy to me because I remember reading them and thinking, oh, that that lady killed her husband. Oh, my gosh. You know, just because they were so weird. Yes. 
I'm surprised that mom didn't, like, I would have been calling her, bugging the crap out of her just for my kids. I know. I've I've seen her do an interview somewhere and she was, like, crying and saying that that was, like, a horrible way for her kids to find out that their dad died. Oh, yeah. A text message. Oh, your dad died. Yeah. I mean, I just can't imagine somebody sending that. She's so heartless. Now, hours after Charles is shot on July 11th, 2019, a funeral home down there in Arizona receives a phone call. They answer to hear a man on the other end of the phone call who says, We just had a death in the family. We really don't want anything but a cremation and then to send the cremains to family in Louisiana. And the woman who answered the call lets the caller know that she's sorry for their loss. And the man says, Um, thank you. And now she needs the man's name to start the process for the cremation. And the caller tells her that his name is Chad Daybell. Yes, you guys, this idiot uses his own name to involve himself in the death of the husband of the woman he's having an affair with. And you can hear clips of this call on Dateline's most recent coverage on this case called The Doobsday Files. So when this woman asks Chad to spell out his last name, he feels a little knot in his stomach, like, oops, I just used my own name. Why did I do that? And he quickly comes up with a solution. D-A-B-A-L. Dabal, he says, pronouncing his name just slightly different than what it really is, because, you know, that will definitely cover his trail. Oh, what an idiot. I know he's so dumb because then he continues and he goes on to tell the woman that he is Charles's nephew and that he lives in Iowa. Again, super quick thinking by Chad, since, you know, he really lives in Idaho. He just chose the state that sounds the most similar. Idaho, Iowa, Daybell, DeBall. No one will ever know. (laughs) No. Like, oh, you covered for yourself. Good job, Chad. Now, remember Lori's niece, Melanie Pelosky. She had joined Chad's following and Church of the Firstborn months earlier with Lori. And just days after Charles dies, she sends Lori a text that reads, quote, you should get a life insurance policy on JJ, Tylee, and you. Because after Charles, we see that anything can always happen if it's in the Lord's will. End quote. And apparently, insurance policies seem to be a huge part of the Lord's will in Chad and Lori's church, because many people who were deemed dark and taken from this earth would benefit Lori and Chad with their insurance policies. So it's no surprise that five days after Charles is murdered, Lori calls the insurance company to make her claim and cash in on her evil deed. Charles had a million-dollar life insurance policy that had always been in his wife Lori's name. After the insurance agent is told that Lori will be making a claim on her husband's life insurance, she is asked how he died. And Lori tells the woman on the phone, well, he was shot. And of course, the agent has to ask, was it a homicide? But Lori calmly explains that no, no, it it was just an accident. And the agent says, okay, are you aware who the primary beneficiary is? And Lori responds confidently, 
Um, it's me. And as Lori hangs up the phone, she feels on top of the world. The insurance company would be getting back to her in the next couple of days to finalize the claim. She would soon have the money and could start her new life with Chad. And then a couple of days pass and Lori finally gets that phone call that she's been waiting for. It's the insurance company, but something's wrong. Lori is informed that she is not the beneficiary of the life insurance anymore. Charles Vallow had changed the beneficiary after he filed for divorce from Lori months earlier. And by March of 2019, the beneficiary was his sister, Kay Woodcock. I love it so much. This, I know, it's like the only light in this case. I know. It's like, yes. I get so much satisfaction. <laughs> like, just knowing that Lori's heart dropped in that moment. Mm-hmm. Like, Yes, I'm glad you were disappointed. You did not get what you wanted. Like, oh crap, we killed him for nothing. Exactly. And Lori shoots Chad a text saying, quote, So I talked to the insurance company. He changed it in March. So it was probably Ned before we got rid of him. It's a spear through my heart. End quote. And it's like, oh, you poor thing. You feel betrayed by the man who you murdered because you didn't get the life insurance that you killed him for. Yes. Dang. That Ned was smarter than you thought, though. (laughs) (laughs) Yep. But Lori was still looking forward to her life with Chad. She just had to play the waiting game now. And as the weeks passed, she sort of starts getting into her own head. What if Chad wasn't going to also get rid of Tammy? What if she did all of this for nothing? No insurance and now no husband to support her. Why is Chad taking so long to make it possible for them to take their relationship to the next level? And her jealousy starts to take hold of her. She texts Chad, quote, I'm just a distraction. Go have fun with your family. I just can't be in the way anymore. End quote. Manipulation at its finest. Yep. Lori's best at it. It did work. And of course, Chad can't lose his goddess. So it doesn't take much for him to convince Lori that it was actually time for her to come to Idaho. She could live there while he was still married to Tammy and they could continue their affair for now. So just days after her jealous outburst, Lori texts her friend. I've got father saying things are moving, that I need to get to Idaho by the end of the month. And so she does. Less than two months after Charles is murdered by Lori and Alex, Lori packs up JJ and Tylee to move them to Rexburg, Idaho. She doesn't take much time to say her goodbyes. She only calls her oldest son, Colby, and tells him that she is moving somewhere cold. She can't say where, but she will be in touch. Which I remember hearing an interview from him, and he was pretty mad about that. Yes. Like, even in the moment, like, he kind of thought everything was weird, didn't he? Like, he was like, what is happening? Charles just died. You're leaving. And she wouldn't tell him where. No. And he he wasn't about to go because he said he felt like, you know, that was his home. Yeah. And was he married at that point yet or no? I can't remember. I think he might have been. I know he's married now and has a kid. Yeah. At least one kid. So, yeah, he was just like, what is happening? Mm -hmm. Like, why are you leaving to Idaho? 
Well, he didn't well, know. Well, he didn't know it was Idaho. <laughs> yeah. Why are you leaving to somewhere cold? So by September 1st, Lori and her kids are moved into a townhouse in Rexburg, Idaho. Lori's brother Alex moves here with her into a townhome in the very same complex. By September 3rd, JJ is enrolled at a new school. He starts attending class at Kennedy Elementary School. And then just about one week after the big move to Idaho, Lori and Alex decide to take the kids up to Yellowstone National Park for a day trip. Yellowstone is 3,500 miles of land that spans across Montana and Idaho. It sits on top of a dormant volcano that is home to multiple geysers and hot springs. It's a huge tourist attraction. And during this trip out to Yellowstone, a photo is taken. Lori must have taken the picture. Her brother Alex Cox is in the background looking off into the distance. Lori's only daughter, Tylee Ryan, is hugging Lori's youngest and adopted son, J.J. Vallow. Tylee is looking at the camera with a little smile across her face, and J.J. is looking at Tylee, wrapping his arms around her. This is the last photo ever taken of Tylee Ryan. And after this day, Tylee was never seen alive again. Wait, so by this time, was Tammy Daybell gone? Nope, she's not. So Tammy and Chad still live there in Salem, Idaho, right there by Rexburg. And she's still alive. But Lori and all her family are living there. Uh, So I guess I didn't realize. I thought the Tammy thing happened before the... Oh, really? um, The kid thing, yeah. Yeah, Tammy's doesn't happen for a little while after this. So on September 9th, in the middle of the night, Alex Cox's phone records put him inside Lori's townhome instead of his own. And this was the only night since moving there that phone records placed him in her home during the night. He was here between 2 and 4 in the morning. And after this, his phone records would place him on Chad Daybell's property just about 10 minutes away. Once the night turned into day, Chad texts his wife Tammy... And Chad tells her that he shot a raccoon and he buried it in their backyard in their pet cemetery. Oh, yeah, I knew that. Yeah. So he didn't want Tammy to be alarmed at the freshly disturbed ground when she returned home from a short trip to visit her family down in Utah. And the same day that Lori and Alex took JJ and Tylee to Yellowstone, Chad was up to his own plotting. That same day, September 8th, Tammy was getting ready to leave town. But first, Chad needed her to come with him so that they could sign papers to increase her life insurance up to the maximum amount that the policy would allow. At this point, the story still has not reached the public. This was a whirlwind of events that blew past all of us before anyone could save these victims. So about one week after their trip to Yellowstone, Lori takes JJ to Bear World. This is a cute little park off the freeway, very close to Rexburg, that is home to a bunch of bears. They've got baby bears and big bears, as well as other animals. There's like a little theme park area that just has a few small rides that the kids can go on. We actually did an Easter egg hunt there last year, and it was super cute. I was impressed with the park. So she takes JJ there. They spend the day there, and then another week passes by before Lori calls JJ's school to unenroll him because she says he will now be homeschooled. 
Around this time, Lori started telling her friends and the people around her that JJ had turned into a zombie, just like Charles had. She started pointing out unusual behavior in JJ, trying to justify her claim that JJ was no longer himself. On September 22nd, a picture was taken of JJ sitting on the couch in their townhome. JJ is playing with a plastic cup and he's wearing red pajamas. The front of these jammies are printed with a little phrase that says, Sleepy Hero. And this is the last photo ever taken of J.J. Vallow. He was last seen this same week at school before he was pulled out. His babysitter was also informed that the family would no longer need her because J.J. was leaving town for a bit. And still, this story wasn't on our radar. These kids were barely known in Idaho. Tylee lived there for only one week and JJ for only four weeks. So initially, Idaho didn't notice their disappearance. And family members, well, they didn't even know where Lori had taken the kids. She was just gone and everyone was left with questions. I know the oldest son kept calling Tylee and messaging her. Yeah. And that like eventually she stopped answering his calls and would only text him. Mm-hmm. Right? Yeah. And he th- he was thinking it was really strange because they talked a lot. Yep. Yeah, and same with Kay Woodcock. She tried to FaceTime JJ all the time, and she said once Lori left after Charles's death, phone calls with him got less and less until eventually they just stopped. Now, it's about one week after JJ vanishes that Lori rents a storage unit from Self Storage Plus there in Rexburg, Idaho on October 1st, 2019. East Idaho News was able to access surveillance video that shows Lori and a man who looks like her brother Alex visiting the unit nine separate times during October and then again one time in November. Alex is also shown arriving once with Chad Daybell. And then Chad comes a second time with Lori. When Nate Eaton went into the storage unit to talk with the owner and review the footage, he was able to get a look at what was inside. And he describes blankets with the kids' pictures on them. One was JJ's blanket full of JJ's precious face, and the other blanket picturing the beautiful Tylee all over it. All the memories of Lori's kids seemed to be stuffed away into this one storage unit. And just like that, Tylee Ryan and J.J. Vallow are gone. Even their memories are hidden away in this dark space, put to the side by their own mom. At this point, it has been less than three months since Lori and Alex murdered Charles Vallow in Chandler, Arizona on July 11, 2019. It took her less than two months to get rid of Charles, move to a new state, make the two children she cared for vanish, and move all their stuff into a storage unit. And the reign of terror is not over. The day after renting the storage unit, Brandon Boudreaux pulls into his driveway in Gilbert, Arizona around 9 a.m. after going to the gym. While he's sitting there in his driveway, a bullet shatters his car window and flies past his head, barely missing him. So his heart starts racing as he peeks over his shoulder to try and get an idea of what in the world is going on. And then he sees it. It's a car that he recognizes, a gray Jeep with Texas plates. He knows that car belongs to Charles Vallow. And that man driving, 
he knows without a doubt that it's Alex Cox. So who is Brandon and how is he connected to Lori and Alex? Like we just said, this is Lori's niece, Melanie Pelosi. This is her ex-husband. Her name used to be Melanie Boudreaux. Brandon is her ex-husband. At this time, they're estranged, almost divorced. And once Melanie started hanging around Lori and decided to join Chad and Lori's Church of the Firstborn, she grew distant with her husband before she ultimately demands a divorce from Brandon around June of 2019, which actually caught him off guard. They seemed to be in a fairly happy marriage and they had four children together that Melanie left when she left Brandon. He would be the one who actually filed for divorce in July of 2019 just a few months before his attempted murder. After Brandon makes contact with police and gives his description of the vehicle, as well as the man driving it, he explains to them that he has been in a heated custody battle with his ex-wife. He thought that she may be trying to kill him before the divorce was finalized to cash in on, of course, an insurance policy. Their divorce was set to finalize just three weeks after this shooting. And Brandon believes that Melanie needed this policy money to support the cult she is a part of with her Aunt Lori. In paperwork filed after this incident, his lawyers state, quote, Father asserts that mother had a million dollars of reasons to have father killed, end quote. And although police were able to determine that whoever shot at Brandon was driving a Jeep registered to the deceased Charles Vallow, they couldn't determine who was actually driving. So no one was arrested in the attempt on his life. And with this, Brandon is terrified. He has seen firsthand how dangerous this group was. He knew Alex shot and killed Charles and he did not want to be next. So he took his four kids and he went into hiding. At this time, Brandon did have custody of their children after filing for and being granted temporary custody. And directly after this incident, Alice Cox returns to Arizona to move Melanie up to Rexburg. And she moves into the townhome directly next door to Lori's. So now Lori, Alex, and Melanie all live in separate units in this same townhome complex. A friend of Melanie's agrees to record her phone call with Melanie to try and get information relating to the incident. Melanie tells her friend that she doesn't know if someone really shot Brandon's car window out or if he just did it himself. She kind of thinks that Brandon made the whole thing up and is trying to plot it on her. But this friend tells Melanie that she knows it wasn't made up because she saw Brandon's window herself. It was definitely shot out. But Melanie, she still believed Brandon did do it himself, or had a friend do it, or maybe even a business colleague, just so that he could say he was hiding the kids from her for their own safety. And now that Brandon is in hiding with Melanie's kids, well, she tells her friend that she isn't too worried, because there's a whole bunch of warrior angels helping her search for her kids right now. But what Melanie left out is that Chad Daybell was deeply involved in Melanie and Brandon's divorce. Chad had labeled Brandon as a Gadianton, which I guess is a secret organization of robbers in the Bible. I don't know. I think it's in the 
Book of Mormon. Oh, okay. I have no idea. They just kind of glaze over it on that Dateline thing. Girl, yeah. The Gadianton robbers. Okay. And it's in the Book of Mormon. It's like a secret combination group. Okay. Like an evil group. Okay. So, yeah. Chad says that Brandon's a part of this group. And then with that, he labels Brandon as a dark spirit. And we know what happens to anyone that Chad names as a dark spirit. They are in danger. Why do these women believe him? I do not know. It's weird. It is so weird. And not only did Chad seem to have it out for Brandon, but he also labeled two of Melanie and Brandon's kids as zombies. Just like he had labeled Lori's now missing kids as zombies. Scary. Glad he went into hiding. That would scare me. I'm glad Brandon and took, took them. It serious. Me too. So shortly after Melanie's move up to Rexburg, Chad texts Lori, quote, Hello, sweet angel. Big news about Tammy. Please let me know if you're awake and can talk. I love you. The short version is that she has been switched. Tammy is in limbo, and a level three demonic entity is in her body. Not really sure of the timing for removal, but I don't want to wait. And then he sends another text around the same time that reads, Big news, my wife is now a demon named Viola. What a psycho. I know. And it's only seven days after the attempted murder of Brandon that Tammy Daybell makes a post on Facebook. Quote, okay, neighbors, something really weird just happened, and I want you to know so you can watch out. I had gotten home and parked in our front driveway. As I was getting stuff out of the back seat, a guy wearing a ski mask was suddenly standing by the back of my car with a paintball gun. He shot at me several times, although I don't think it was loaded. I yelled for Chad, and he ran off around the back of my house. I have no idea what his motive was, and he never spoke, even after I asked him several times what he thought he was doing. I was about to smack him with my freezer mills from enrichment tonight when I decided to yell for Chad instead, end quote. Oh my gosh. And Tammy's sister, Samantha, does really believe that Tammy probably did think it was some dumb kid shooting a paintball gun at her. I mean, what else would Tammy think? Because it just seems out of the realm of possibilities in most people's minds that someone is going to be standing there trying to shoot you. Yeah. But we know that most likely this was not a kid with a paintball gun because that same day, phone records show that Alex Cox texted Lori from a burner phone saying, quote, I'm showing drive time from apartment to Chad is about 10 minutes end quote. And I know that the gun Brandon saw that shot at him had a silencer on it. So, and I honestly don't even know what that looks like, but I wonder if that would make the gun like look a little different to her where she thought like it could be something like a paintball gun. Mm -hmm. Now to me and probably to all of you, all these events ring too similar. Even if they weren't able to be connected at the time, it's pretty clear Alex Cox is behind all of these shootings at the command of Lori and Chad. And first of all, Alex, I'm glad you're like a terrible shot and that both your second and third attempted murders did not work because 
at least one life was saved, Brandon's, and he can be a father to his four children. Like, Alex is literally such a loser. I I do not understand Lori's hold over him. It's very strange to me. It is very odd. Like, I feel like there's like a weird dynamic there that we may never know. Right. And unfortunately, Tammy wouldn't remain as lucky as Brandon to get away from the evil that was chasing her. On October 19th, 2019, Chad Daybell calls 911 to report that his wife, Tammy Daybell, has passed away while sleeping in their bed. This was only 10 days after her post on Facebook about being shot at. What Chad didn't know is that during this time, phone records would eventually show investigators that Alex Cox was parked near the Daybell home at this very moment. Oh, the moment that she died? Yes. Ooh, creepy. So Alex was nearby. I don't know why. Maybe he brought Chad something. I don't know. Now, Chad and Tammy's five children helped participate in the funeral arrangements. One son was serving an LDS mission at this time and had to be brought home for the funeral. Oh my gosh. And two days later, a viewing was held where her family lived down in Springfield, Utah. And the following day, she was buried there in Springville Evergreen Cemetery. I'm surprised he didn't try to cremate her. I know. I bet you he wanted to, but I wonder if that would have just been too obvious too much of a red flag yeah yeah i doubt her family would have let that happen yeah me either like if that's not what she wanted and they all knew it it would have been too much for him to try probably yeah now one day after she was buried rexburg idaho holds a memorial service for her at the henry's fork stake center an lds church there near her home And just like that, in less than a week after passing away, Tammy was buried without an autopsy. It was pretty clear Chad was not questioning how his healthy wife passed away so unexpectedly. And then an article surfaced in the LDS Avow, which is a global initiative newsletter. It was an essay written and published by Chad Daybell, and he titled it, Moving into the Second Half of My Life. And East Idaho News was able to obtain the first section of this essay, which reads, quote, My dear wife Tammy passed away in her sleep early Saturday, October 19th. When I awoke around 6 a.m., it was clear she had been gone for several hours. It came as a shock. I couldn't believe I hadn't been awakened somehow. But all indications are that her spirit simply slipped away during the night. Her face looked serene, with her eyes closed and a slight smile. It was devastating to discover her that way, but I'm so grateful that her death was peaceful, end quote. And it's like, okay, well, a cause of death can't be that her spirit simply (laughs) slipped away. That's just not how it works. Or she was drugged. Yeah. Now, Chad goes on to explain how Tammy gave him many messages before passing away and that she had told him this was in God's plan, that Chad was meant to live his life in two separate parts, that this was a plan he couldn't control. God put this plan in place for Chad before Chad was ever born. And unlike Lori, Chad was able to make a successful life insurance claim on the wife he most likely just murdered. He was granted $430,000. 
Only weeks after Chad's wife Tammy dies, Chad marries Lori on November 5th, 2019. Chad and Lori decided to travel to, of course, Kauai, Hawaii. And this is where they tied the knot. I swear Lori has some sort of obsession with Hawaii. I know. She marries her third husband. Yeah. She marries Joe Ryan there. She moves there with Charles. She leaves. When she leaves Charles, she goes there. She's getting married to Chad here. It's just, she's like always in Hawaii. Yes. Poor Hawaii. I mean, it is a cool place. Yeah, it's great, but they don't want Lori. Nope. (laughs) So Chad and Lori have a private wedding on the beach. Both of them are wearing white clothes and Hawaiian lays. They were finally together, taking at least four lives at this point to get here. Remember a year earlier in November of 2018, not long after they met that October, Lori and Chad had said they married themselves in an LDS temple where Chad performed their own ceremony. I sort of wonder if maybe it was the same date, like one year later. I don't know what date they quote unquote sealed themselves in the temple that November in 2018, but I kind of wonder if they purposely got legally married on the same date one year later since they were married again in November, just one year later. Probably. So they sealed themselves in November of 2018. They legally got married in November of 2019. Now, after Lori and Chad have their dream wedding on the beach in Kauai, they stay for a while, honeymooning at a beach resort there on the island. And during this time, they were on the search for a home. They wanted to move here. So at this point, they contact Jeannie Martin, who had an apartment to rent. Jeannie told Dateline that Chad told her he was an author and he wanted to move to Hawaii to have a peaceful place to write. And don't worry, he says, I'm a successful author. I make upwards of $30,000 a month, so we'd be a really great couple for you to rent to. And then Lori jumps in, telling Jeannie how Chad is a really prophetic man and that he's a healer. So if Jeannie needs anything, she could come to Chad and he could pray for her. Jeannie thought the couple seemed nice, maybe a little bit odd, but she could tell that they were very much in love. And instead of running a background check, she decided to just do a little Google search. I mean, if he was a successful author, surely his name would pop up on Google. But Jeannie learned more than she expected. Once she typed Chad Daybell into Google, an obituary came up, the obituary of Tammy Daybell. And all at once, her whole interaction with Chad rubbed her the wrong way. His wife of almost 30 years just died two weeks earlier. She texts Chad and says that she came across his wife's obituary, asking Chad what happened. And he tells Jeannie that it really was such a shock. He knew she had been dead for hours, but Once she was buried, he was actually able to talk to Tammy from the grave, and Tammy told Chad that she was happy in heaven. She was helping others just like she always had, and she of course made sure to tell Chad to go on with his life, and that's exactly what he was doing. That's why he married Lori so fast. But Jeannie didn't buy Chad's BS, so she says, oh, I'm sorry to hear that. What did the autopsy show? 
And you knew Lori already? Once that text was sent, Chad and Lori never contacted Jeannie again about the apartment for rent. And that interaction stayed with her until she one day caught wind of the story that would eventually sweep the nation. And at the same time that Chad and Lori are honeymooning in Hawaii, police are being called in American Fork, Utah. Brandon and his parents make a call to police after discovering that his ex-wife, Lori's niece, Melanie, is inside his parents' garage. Remember, Brandon had gone into hiding after being shot at in his driveway in Arizona. Well, he had come up to American Fork with his kids to stay with his parents, and they just caught Melanie in their garage, and she wasn't alone. Alex Cox was parked in a car outside. He had dropped her off. The man who Brandon believed was the one who shot at him. And there's body cam footage of this incident, and when the police show up, Melanie is outside while Brandon, his parents, and the kids remain inside. She starts telling police that she has a custody agreement, that she's worried for her children because they're in danger. Brandon has done crazy things, she says. Let me go inside. Let me get my kids. So officers go inside at this point and make contact with Melanie and Brandon's four children. When they return outside, they inform Melanie that the kids are safe and will not be removed from Brandon's care. And that's when the officers notice a man waiting in a car down the road. They approach the car and ask the man if he is Alex, and can they see his ID. Alex explains that he just drove Melanie down here from Idaho to get her kids. Well, it's still illegal to break into someone's garage, so officers give Melanie a trespassing ticket. She wasn't allowed to be on that property, but she won't give up. She won't stop arguing and eventually the officers decide to arrest her and upgrade her charges to domestic violence. And as one officer drives off to take Melanie to jail, another approaches Alex, telling him that Melanie is now being taken to the Utah County Jail and he can bail her out for $2,000. Melanie ultimately decides to plead guilty to misdemeanor criminal trespassing and receives a six-month suspended sentence and one year of probation. That's the last thing she thought she was going to get. <laughs> oh, I know. I'm glad they did something to her. She must have rubbed them the wrong way. Because that, I mean, that seems like kind of a lot, you know, for like a, I feel like people argue over the kids a lot. Yeah. You know? Yeah. I'm glad that, you know, she rubbed them the wrong way and she actually got in trouble. Yeah. First time out of all the cases. So now we are to mid-November at this point and Melanie returns to Idaho about the same time that Chad and Lori are returning from their honeymoon. And remember, the country still doesn't know about this story. This couple has probably killed both of their spouses and Lori's children have been missing for two months at this point, but their secrets wouldn't be kept for much longer because Kay Woodcock was doing some digging of her own. It had been months since she last heard from her grandson, J.J. Vallow. Remember, Kay is Charles's sister, and Charles adopted his nephew from Kay's son. This is J.J. Kay and her husband had been suspicious for months now, but they had no idea where Lori went after her brother shot and killed Kay's brother. Lori just up and left, which was strange because Lori had always been close with Kay. They always thought Lori was an amazing mom to JJ. 
but Charles's death rang suspicious for everyone. And then Lori was just all of a sudden gone. And calls with the kids dwindled until all of a the sudden there were no more calls at all. And then one day, Kay somehow logs into Charles's Amazon. And she sees it. A purchase for two wedding rings. And the delivery address was in Rexburg, Idaho. That must be it. That must be where Lori took the kids. And with that, Kay opened up all the secrets that Lori and Chad had been keeping. On November 26, just a couple weeks after Chad and Lori married, Kay calls the Rexburg police asking for a welfare check on her grandson that she hasn't been able to contact for months. And she gives them the address she found through Amazon. Police arrive later that day at 565 Pioneer Road in Rexburg, Idaho. Chad Daybell and Alex Cox answer the door, but Lori isn't there. And while Alex tells officers that JJ is with his grandma, Kay Woodcock, for a visit in Louisiana, Chad is like, oh, I'm not really sure. I barely know this family. I'm not really close with Lori or anything. Which clearly were two big, huge lies because Kay was the one who called for the welfare check and Chad was, in fact, married to Lori. Now, officers then ask Alex where they could find Lori and he tells them it's a possibility that she's in the apartment next door, apartment 107. But when they check, the townhome is vacant. And then Chad walks to his car and starts driving away. But police are like, no, we are not done talking to you. And they flag him down. Chad again reiterates that he doesn't really know this family well and that the last time he ever saw JJ was about a month or so ago, in October, in apartment 107. And after getting the runaround from Chad and Alex, the police eventually do get in contact with Lori at her townhome hours later. And Lori is like, there's no worries here. JJ is with one of my friends down in Arizona. Her name is Melanie Gibb, and her son has autism as well. What's all of this about? And the officers explained to her that there were officers here earlier that spoke with Chad and Alex, and those officers got a bad vibe. They felt something was off because Chad and Alex wouldn't talk to them. They said that they didn't know anything about the child, and the situation just seemed off. And Lori is like, no, no, nothing is wrong here. What's going on is that JJ's grandparents have been harassing me. I've had to move around a lot. One of my brothers is trying to kill me. Not my brother that lives here, of course. My brother here is kind of my protector. It's my other brother. He was in with my ex-husband and they were plotting to kill me for my $2 million life insurance. Again, remember, we talked about this at the beginning of this episode. Chad Daybell told Lori that Charles and Adam were plotting to kill her. When, in fact, Charles and Adam were planning an intervention for Lori to help her come back to reality. And Charles had emailed Tammy Daybell informing her of the affair. And he must have said something about how they were doing an intervention for Lori. And so when Chad caught wind of it, he says that Adam and Charles are actually planning to kill her. She clearly still believes this. Lori then goes on to tell police that the past year has been a horrible year. 
and that she was going to move back to Arizona because JJ was just having such a hard time at the elementary school there in Rexburg. And the person who called the police is her sister-in-law, JJ's natural grandma. Lori says, quote, her son is a drug addict. He had a baby with a girl who's a drug addict and CPS took him, gave him to the grandmother, and she wanted us to adopt him, my husband and I, who died earlier this year. Since he passed away, she has been trying to fight me for him and has been really horrible to me. End quote. Lori goes on to literally start talking about the life insurance policy again and how her husband of 15 years switched his life insurance policy to his sister's name, who got a million dollars when he died and they got nothing. She says, I got nothing to raise JJ and the kids got nothing. She got a million dollars. And that's why I just knew she was going to sue me for JJ because now she has this million dollars and she can hire people and I have nothing. And the officer is like, okay, but you have legal custody. And Lori's like, yeah, but she she just only causes me trouble. This is why I lie all the time about where we are and what we're doing. So I look like a suspect, but I'm a good person. I've raised all my kids and I've done everything I'm supposed to do in life, but everyone is causing me trouble right now. I don't tell her where I am ever. She has no legal rights to him at all. She's been horrible to me. And the officer tells Lori that according to his understanding, Kay hasn't called or harassed Lori at all to get the child. And Lori says, well, yeah, but she emails me all the time trying to document everything for court. Like, I haven't heard from him since this time. And I've told her that he's fine. It's awful. I feel like I'm being tracked all the time. And the officer is like, okay, well, now that we heard your side of the story, this makes more sense. But we were really weirded out when we talked to your brother earlier and that other guy. Who is that other guy? And Lori's like, oh, you mean my brother's friend? That's Chad. And they ask for Chad's last name. And she tells them it's Daybell. One of the officers then says, Chad, D-A-Y-B-E-L-L. Doesn't he live out there? Isn't that the Chad Daybell? Didn't his wife pass away recently? Is that him? And Lori remains dead silent while the other officer says that he's not really sure, but the name sounds familiar. And the officer that questioned it says, I bet it is. I bet it's him. And I don't think that the Rexburg police bought Lori's bullcrap for a single second. She sounds off her rocker in this recording, and I can tell they were like, mm-hmm. What, was she trying to use her charm? Oh, yeah. She's laughing. She's like, I'm such a good person. and But I can tell that they're kind of like, okay. Yeah. So the police leave, and immediately after they leave, they call Melanie Gibb. This is Lori's friend in Arizona that apparently has J.J., now, this is a different Melanie than, than Lori's niece. There are two Melanies. So there's Melanie Poloski and Melanie Gibb. Poloski is the niece and Gibb is the friend in Arizona. In fact, I believe this is the friend that went with Lori to the Chandler Police Department in Arizona to report that Charles had stolen her purse. We talked about this incident last episode. 
Now, when the Rexburg police call, Melanie doesn't answer the phone. So police return to Lori's home just minutes later. They're determined to make contact with JJ. Officers let Lori know that they can't get in contact with Melanie Gibb. And Lori tells officers that they're at Frozen 2. That's why Melanie isn't answering. And she will let Melanie know to call authorities here in Rexburg as soon as she can to let them know that JJ is down in Arizona with her. Around this time, Chad does call Melanie Gibb. Chad asks Melanie to tell the officers that JJ is with her. He wanted Melanie to lie for them. And they asked Melanie to just take a picture of a random group of kids and send it over. This made Melanie really uncomfortable. Chad sounded nervous on the phone. What was going on? So Melanie changes her tune with the couple. Up until this point, Melanie had been Lori's best friend. She debuted on the podcast Preparing a People with them. She was a follower of the Church of the Firstborn and attended conferences with the group. She watched Chad and Lori's relationship blossom and she supported their affair. But this, asking her to lie to the police about having Lori's child, this crossed the line. So when she called Lori to discuss what was going on, she followed her gut and recorded the phone call. Melanie tells Lori that she asked Chad a few days ago where JJ was and that Chad told her for her security that she can't know where JJ is. So Melanie asks Lori, is there a reason I would be in danger to know where JJ is? And Lori says, no, it's JJ's danger. There are people after me. And Chad chimes in and says, yeah, so if you know that ultimately puts you in danger. And Melanie says, okay, well, I was wondering why you told the police that he was with me. And Lori says, well, I just needed to say he was somewhere so I didn't have to tell police where he really is so that they won't tell Kay where JJ is. JJ is safe and he's happy. And Lori goes on to spew out more lies until Melanie is eventually like, okay, well, I asked Al, your brother, if I wanted to know where he was and he told me that I did not want to know and that JJ would not be found. But Lori goes on to say that Alex doesn't know. No one knows. And it's, and it's so that no one needs to be questioned about it and they can all just keep JJ safe. After some more back and forth, Melanie goes on to ask Lori if she can share a scripture with Lori. And Lori says that she would love it. But first, let me ask you a question, she says. And then Lori goes on to say, Did Alma turn himself into King Noah, or what was he required to do? Alma was required to go. And what about Moroni? He also had to hide in the cavity of a rock by day and go out by night. I'm assuming Lori is trying to make the point that all these people in the scriptures had to hide, and that's why Lori and Chad are having to do the same. But Melanie goes on to share her scripture, basically telling Lori that the Lord doesn't work in darkness and that if you go unto God, he will help you through anything. But if you open the door to Satan, Satan will take over. 
And Lori is like, we have not opened the door to darkness, Melanie. Darkness is always knocking all the time. That's the way that the dark works with the light. And I promise you that I have done nothing wrong in this case, but sometimes you just have to hide in the cavity of a rock. And that's what the Lord requires of you and just how it is because there's a lot of darkness on this earth. They're coming after me for zero reason besides the darkness of Kay, which you already know she's dark. And Melanie tells Lori that she's only met Kay once, so she doesn't actually know that she's dark. She seems like a normal person. But then Lori brings up the insurance money yet again, telling Melanie, oh, So you didn't know that she changed the insurance policy into her name. None of that is dark, right? And Lori continues on telling Melanie that she doesn't know why Melanie's being controversial with her. And if Melanie's going to show this conversation to the police or something, but that she really loves her. And Melanie responds, letting Lori know that if she loved her, she would have never told the police that JJ was with her. That's not what a friend does. Melanie says that that makes her look weird and it just doesn't look good. She told Lori, you need to think of my welfare if you love me. And Lori says, such an infuriating answer, quote, I did. And I did exactly what I felt the Lord was instructing me to do. And I appreciate you and I love you. And I would never do anything to harm you. And you can have... All of this confirmed to you by the Lord. End quote. And like we've said, Lori is the biggest manipulator. And she is literally using her friend's belief in God to try and manipulate her into thinking that what Lor- that Lori's done nothing wrong. And like, God will tell you. <laughs> yeah. It's so weird. And Melanie tells Lori that it's her personal belief that Lori has been deceived and tricked by Satan, that she doesn't believe what Lori is doing is correct. She points out how Tammy's dead, how Charles is dead, how JJ is now missing. It gives Melanie a weird gut feeling. It doesn't feel right. This doesn't sound like you. It sounds like you've been influenced by someone dark that wants you to be scared. And Lori just says, well, I'm sorry you feel that way. I love you so much. You will know when Christ comes again, and he's coming soon. So is this the first person that's kind of put it together? I think it's one of the first people that's like realizing like, yeah, this is doesn't seem right. Yeah. But Melanie followed them for a long time. So I do think she kind of knew a lot of stuff, but is just kind of realizing like, all right, I think this was like taken further than I expected. Yeah, because if she's like thinking, oh, Charles is dead, Tammy's dead, these kids are missing. Yeah, she's starting to be like, this is weird. Okay. So, and then Chad jumps in, of course, and he starts talking about how his sister-in-law is dark and is coming up with these same insane theories and how he hopes his sister-in-law isn't the one influenced Melanie. He says that his kids know he begged Tammy to go to the doctor, that she was falling apart, that she just passed away, and that's just how it happened. He says his son was right there with him and that all these conspiracies just make him sick to his stomach. He said that he's been told for years that Tammy would pass away at a young age. 
And he says that back then, he didn't even know Lori would be in his life. He just knew his life had two segments. Tammy is on her own special mission. She's visited my kids. Melanie, you just have to have faith. There's no way Lori and I would ever come up with this. It's not a master plan. But Melanie stands firm in saying that her gut is telling her something isn't right. That she's always sort of felt uncomfortable with some of their teachings. And that this really crosses the line. And then Lori tells her, quote, Well, I'm sorry that I included you in those teachings then for your own sake, because I wish you didn't have as much knowledge as you have, because you will be held accountable for the knowledge that you do have, Mel. End quote. They then go on to talk and argue about the scriptures and about Lori's intentions. But before the phone call ultimately comes to an end, after Lori tells Melanie that she must be friends now with all the people that are against her. Melanie ends up turning these tapes over to police on December 6, 2019, after informing them that Chad and Lori had asked her several times to lie to the police for them. That night that Chad and Lori did ask Melanie to lie for them, the police in Gilbert, Arizona actually made contact with Melanie at her home after being asked by the Rexburg police to find her and talk to her. And when the Gilbert police show up at Melanie's home, she tells them that she has not seen JJ in months. And once the police in Rexburg are notified that JJ is not in Arizona, a warrant is drawn up. So police arrive at the townhome complex the next day to serve search warrants at Lori and Alex's apartments. When they get there, they discover that Chad and Lori have left together. It's now November 27th, 2019. So they do a search of the home anyway. While searching Lori's townhome, they find JJ's autism medication, which still has 17 pills in the bottle. This prescription had never been filled in Idaho. That same day, authorities searched Self Storage Plus, where they found all the items belonging to the two children. Right around this time is when the story finally blows up publicly and spreads like wildfire. Finally, the public learns about the missing kids, and it shocks everyone that it reaches. And just days after Chad and Lori fled Idaho, some of their followers celebrate new marriages. Two days after the search was conducted on November 27th, Alex Cox marries a longtime follower of Chad and Lori. Her name is Zulema Pastinas. They marry in Las Vegas on November 29th, 2019. Zulema had been a part of the Church of the Firstborn since 2018 and was a good friend to Lori. Just months earlier, Chad had blessed Alex for being a faithful follower, and he tells Alex that he will soon have a wife. Once Alex married Zulema, he changed his name and is now Alex Pastinas. And the next day, Melanie, Lori and, Al- and Alex's niece, marries Ian Poloski. Ian was from Rexburg and had met Melanie once she moved up to Idaho just weeks earlier. Do you think it's Ian or Ian? Oh, it might be Ian. (laughs) (laughs) Just because, I mean, I know. Yes, because. Uncle is Ian, but most people say it Ian. Because Shannon's brother is Ian, but it is probably Ian. Yes. Okay, I'll say Ian from here on out. So Ian had 
finalized a divorce that same year in July of 2019 from his wife, Natalie, that he shared two children with. While Melanie's divorce to Brandon had finalized that same month they were married in November of 2019. Ian and Melanie went on their first date in November of 2019 to McKenzie River, a restaurant here in Idaho Falls near the river. And within weeks, they were married on November 30th, 2019. They explained their fast marriage by saying that it was because of their kids and that even though they also got married in Las Vegas, just like Alex and Zulema one day apart, it was just a coincidence. It wasn't planned. And honestly, the whole backstory with Melanie's mom, Lori's sister, is also a strange one that raises a lot of questions for people. In 1995, Melanie's mom, Stacy, and her ex-husband, Stephen Cope, went through a heated custody battle over their kid, Melanie, when they divorced. Remember, Stacy had died from her rare diabetes, so when fighting for custody... Steve had filed petitions saying that Stacy refused traditional medicine and that she had this fear of food, which was resulting in her getting sicker throughout the years. Their marriage was on the rocks here and there, and Stacy would take their daughter Melanie down to her parents' house every so often and have her stay with her parents. This is the home of Janice and Barry Cox, Stacy and Lori's parents. There were multiple times that Stacy would leave Melanie in the care of her parents and her sister. Steven says that Stacy's mental health continued to decline as she wouldn't follow the guidelines for administering insulin and that she thought food was evil. Stacy didn't allow Melanie to eat any sugar or drink milk and she kept her away from socializing in school. In kindergarten, Melanie wanted to take care of her mom and often wouldn't attend school because of this. Stacy was very worried about germs and this would rub off on Melanie who at age six would wash her hands upwards of 30 times a day. And Stacy keeps threatening suicide to Stephen and states that her parents, Janice and Barry, agree with her that it was her time to go. Melanie's dad, Stephen, notices weird behavior in Melanie when she returns from the home of Janice and Barry. He said that Melanie would cut off her hair and talk like a baby. And Stacy ends up admitting to the court that her dad, Barry Cox, is a diagnosed schizophrenic and that Janice Cox, her mom, is obsessed with her body image. But Barry and Janice deny these claims. They say that Stephen doesn't understand how to deal with Stacy's medical problems because he's just a construction worker type that didn't finish his degree, unlike their daughter Stacy, who graduated from BYU with honors. Stacy was their oldest child, and Melanie was their oldest grandchild. Melanie's dad, Stephen Cope, would have custody of her before her mom Stacy passed away when Melanie was nine years old. She grew up with her dad, who mostly cut off communication with her mom's side of the family after the nasty custody battle that Stacy's parents were heavily involved in. Lori was the one to inform Melanie of her mom's passing through a phone call. When Melanie was about 15 years old, she came back in contact with her mom's side of the family after Googling them and finding her uncle Adam Cox, the radio DJ. 
I just thought this was a little interesting side bit to Melanie's story and kind of a small look into Lori's family that I feel like might show us some signs of mental illness within the family. Yeah. Or like some general dysfunction. Did it say how she passed away? Well, remember, it said she passed away because of like the diabetes and the gastropenesis or whatever. Oh. And you said you hadn't really heard of that. It sounds like Stephen is claiming that, like, because it said that her body couldn't absorb nutrients. In their divorce papers and their custody papers, it sounds like Stephen's alleging that she wasn't getting nutrients because she was scared of food. So to him, it seemed more like a mental illness. That's interesting. So back to Melanie and Ian getting married along with Alex and Zulema. Once Brandon saw that Melanie was remarried to a man with children, he grew concerned. He was worried for the kids as he felt that Melanie and her family were dangerous to be around. So Brandon called Ian's ex-wife, Natalie, to inform her about Lori's missing children and how Melanie was involved in a cult following the teachings of Chad and Lori. Natalie is, of course, appalled and she calls Ian with her concerns, who agrees that the situation is alarming. And with this, Ian meets with the FBI and agrees to wear a wire while talking to his new wife, Melanie, to see if she has any information about where the kids were. And after some digging with no real answers, Ian decides to let Melanie know that he was wired, that he was trying to see if she had information about Lori's kids, but that after talking to her, he trusted that she had nothing to do with it. And I know at one point, Natalie called Brandon. So Ian's ex-wife called Brandon, Melanie's ex-husband, and had like told him like, I'm so sorry, Brandon, but Ian told me that Melanie admitted her and her family did plot to murder you. Oh my goodness. But Melanie denies that, of course. Yeah. Now, everyone else in the world is wondering at this point where Lori's kids are. Remember, they had fled Idaho and no one knew where they were before they're eventually spotted in Princeville on Kauai in early December of 2019. And theories were all over the place. Some people believed that Chad and Lori maybe truly were just two nutballs that really believed the world was about to end. They thought and hoped that Tylee and JJ may just be hiding out in a bunker somewhere with other cult members. So I saw tons of theories circulating on Facebook during this time about people, you know, believing they spotted the children in different areas of the country. And while everyone hoped and wished the children were alive, that we would miraculously find them and save them from the destruction, many people knew in their gut that this wasn't going to have a happy ending. But searches continued and everyone held tight to that hope for a little miracle. And just after the story finally spread across the country, another death happens. It's December 12th, 2019. At this point, Alex, Zulema, Ian, and Melanie have all moved down to Arizona after being married in Las Vegas a couple weeks earlier. A call comes in to the Gilbert Police Department from a young man. It's Zulema's 25-year-old son. He says that he needs an ambulance because a middle-aged male is passed out. He's breathing, but it's not good. His name is Alex. He's in the bathroom of the home, and he explains Alex as being his mom's boyfriend. So he must not have known that the couple got married weeks earlier. 
Alex's wife, Zulema, tells authorities that Alex had been feeling sick lately. That a week earlier, he actually drove into Mexico to pick up some medicine because it was cheaper there, but that he refused to go to a doctor there in Arizona. Alex had called a quote-unquote friend, says Zulema, and that friend, a.k.a. probably Chad Daybell, gave Alex a blessing over the phone that day. Just a few days before Alex collapsed in the bathroom, he told Zulema that he had money stashed away for her in the closet, between five and $7,000, just in case. And just before this, Alex had said something even more strange. He had told Zulema that he was fine with killing Charles because Charles had been a zombie. But shortly before his death that December of 2019, it was also announced that Tammy Dable's body would be exhumed. And Alex told Zulema he was nervous. He actually thought he might be Chad and Lori's fall guy. But he wouldn't say exactly for what. It was December 11th. 2019 that Tammy's body was exhumed and on December 12th 2019 Alex was pronounced dead at 51 years old a medical examiner would later rule his death as natural causes saying that he died of blood clots in his lungs and the results of Tammy's autopsy haven't been made public yet still to this day because this case is still ongoing But what we do know is that it was enough to change Tammy's death from natural causes to homicide. They found some poison or smothering. Yep, they definitely found something. Which, why did Alex Cox get so sick too? That couldn't have just happened. I don't think so. Like, I I truly do not believe it could have been natural causes. There's no way. That would be the biggest coincidence ever. (laughs) I know. But why did he have blood clots in his lungs? Is there something you can give someone that will give them blood clots? I mean, blood (laughs) blood clots can kill you. I know. So at this point, Chad and Lori continue their paradise living in Hawaii. Authorities served a search warrant on Chad's home there in Salem, Idaho on January 3rd, 2020. And during the search of his home, they take away 43 items, including computers, cell phones, journals, documents, and medications. And all of this was sent to an FBI lab where it would be tested. And then days later, on January 10th, Chad's brother, Matt Daybell, comes forward begging Chad to cooperate with authorities so that the children can be found. He goes on to explain to the public that his family has little to do with Chad that they have distanced themselves over the years as Chad's radical beliefs grew and the claims in his books concerned the Daybell family. Because he's a nutball. Yes, he is. (laughs) And then, after a couple months of Lori and Chad being in Hawaii with no kids in sight, police order Lori to produce her children by January 30th. She served this notice on January 25th. But the date would come and go, and Lori misses the deadline to bring her children to the authorities. With this, Madison County, which is in Rexburg, Idaho, issues an arrest warrant. The authorities in Kauai arrest 46-year-old Lori at 2.30 p.m. on February 20th, 2020, where she is staying with her new husband, Chad, in Princeville. 
Lori is charged with two felony counts of desertion and non-support of dependent children, as well as resisting or obstructing officers, criminal solicitation to commit a crime, and contempt of court. And then finally, on March 5th, 2020, Lori is extradited from Hawaii to Idaho, where she is taken to the Madison County Jail. She appeared in court the following day on March 6, 2020. A judge reduces her bail at this time to $1 million, but she was still unable to post bond. And then months go by with little tidbits coming out here and there, different court appearances as Lori continues to try and get her bond reduced but never does. But all this time, the big question is heavy on everyone's hearts. Where are the children? Until finally on June 9th, 2020, that question is answered in the most heartbreaking way. Authorities walk up to the front door of Chad Daybell's home and they knock. Chad opens the door, peeking his head outside, and authorities hand him a search warrant. With that, they start an intense search at his home for a second time. But this time, they aren't here to search inside the home again. They are here to search his property the yard around his home. Police start using still poles to probe the ground in an area that was deemed as the family pet cemetery. Tammy's sister, Samantha, had pointed authorities to this area after being shown an aerial picture of the Daybell property, and where she pointed was a spot in Chad's yard that Alex's phone had pinged at multiple times on September 9, 2019 the day after Tylee was last seen. And while searching for disturbed ground around the pet cemetery, another group of officers discover a section of the ground where the grass is shorter than the rest. Nate Eaton with East Idaho News had received a tip about the search, but when he couldn't get through the road to the scene, he jumped into a friend's helicopter and reported the scene from the sky. Once a couple areas indicated suspicious to investigators, they brought in a backhoe to start digging into the ground. Investigators at the pet cemetery discover charred bones, a charred bucket, and charred tissue as they start digging. And Cheryl Anderson confirmed that these remains were human remains. Cheryl is an anthropologist at Boise State University. These remains in the pet cemetery would ultimately be determined to be the remains of Tylee Ryan. She was believed to be buried here in the early morning hours of September 9, 2019, the day after that picture was taken of her in Yellowstone with her mom and uncle Alex. Alex's phone pinged in this spot on Chad Daybell's property this very morning. Tylee's remains were so decomposed that her cause of death was hard to determine. But what we do know is that after Tylee was murdered, her body was dismembered and then burned before being buried. And then the search underneath that grass that was shorter than the rest starts. The sod was removed and underneath they find wood paneling, large rocks and some brick. And as they remove these items, they uncover a black plastic bag. And as the bag is exposed, a strong odor leaks out into the air. Once the plastic is cut into, it reveals a white plastic garbage sack. And an investigator reaches in and makes a slice into this bag. 
and what they see is the crown of a skull with light brown hair. This would ultimately be determined to be the body of seven-year-old J.J. Vallow. He was buried in those same red pajamas that he was pictured in on September 22nd, the ones that read Sleepy Hero on the front. He is believed to have been buried on Chad's property on September 23rd, 2019, just a couple of weeks after his sister. JJ was found with duct tape around his wrists and ankles, as well as duct tape over his mouth. At this point, Chad had taken his vehicle across the street to his daughter's house, where he watched the search closely. While he is waiting and watching, knowing what the investigators were about to uncover, Lori calls him from jail and he told her, They're searching. And he won't get into specifics because he knows that jailhouse phone calls are recorded. So he just says, not the house. They are searching the yard. Chad is clearly nervous at this point, And once he sees that police have uncovered remains, he starts to drive away before he is ultimately stopped one mile down the road and arrested. Chad is then taken to the Fremont County Jail. Both Lori and Chad received different charges before ultimately they were both charged with first-degree murder and conspiracy in the murders of both J.J. Vallow and Tylee Ryan. Chad was additionally charged with first-degree murder in the case of his wife, Tammy Daybell. The Chandler Police Department is also wanting to file additional charges against Lori Vallow in the murder of Charles Vallow. In May of this year, 2021, Lori was deemed non-competent to stand trial. In Idaho, there is no insanity plea, so if someone is not competent, they have to be granted mental health treatment until they are competent. So in May, a judge had granted her mental health treatment for 90 days. Her attorney later on filed a motion to extend this treatment because she is still not competent to proceed. At this time, this is where we are with Lori's trial. We are playing the waiting game with her until she is competent enough to go to trial. Oh, that makes me mad. Because who even knows when it's going to be at this point? I know. And even if she's not competent, she should still be, you know, held accountable for what she did. I don't, at this point, I don't care if she's competent. Yeah, regardless of like kind of her beliefs and her mental state, I think she knew right from wrong. And I think you can tell by the way she lies and manipulates and yes. like that was pre-planned. Yes. Yeah. Now, Chad's trial was originally set to start this year, just this past month, actually, November of 2021. But back in August, Chad waived his right to a speedy trial and his trial will most likely be set for sometime next year. A judge has ruled to move Chad's trial to Ada County, which is about four hours west of Rexburg, Idaho, where he is currently jailed. Ada County is over in Boise with a higher population. The prosecution has announced that they are seeking the death penalty for Chad Daybell. Now, we are all just waiting for justice to be served in this absolutely devastating case. Well, everyone is except for Chad Daybell's children. I would have expected them to be angry with their dad for killing their mom, but Chad's kids don't believe that Chad is even involved in all this evil. 
48 Hours did an interview with Chad's kids. His daughter, Emma Murray, said, quote, I think he was fooled in the worst and most deadly way possible. None of this would have ever happened if Lori Vallow hadn't come into his life, end quote. That's sad. I mean, that may be true, but it, he still did it. Like, he still knew stuff. He still happened. They were in his backyard. He still played a role. Yeah. Exactly. Now, this interview with 48 Hours was the first time any of Chad's kids had spoken out about their dad's alleged crimes. But Emma, Garth, Seth, Leah, and Mark all believe that Chad was actually framed. Mark Daybell says, quote, It's just not possible. Anyone who says that my dad could kill a person doesn't know my dad. End quote. And one of their points is that Chad was a grave digger. Remember, he worked in cemeteries for years and has probably dug hundreds of graves. They know that Chad would have dug a better grave than a shallow one directly in his own backyard. Well, yeah, we know Alex Cox did that. Yeah, but I also think Al- I think Chad helped. And I think... Well, yeah Chad, yeah, Chad gave him the go-ahead, like, yeah come bury him here like he knew they were dead whether he dug the grave or not doesn't matter yeah and what i don't think they're taking into consideration is that like chad a was probably in a hurry i'm sure some sort of panic would set in when you're trying to bury bodies and also he had no equipment like at the cemetery i'm sure he was digging them with a backhoe or something but yeah I'm sure whether it was just Alex, whether it was Alex and Chad together burying back there, I mean, they were using a shovel. So the graves would, of course, be shallow. I mean, they they all knew what happened. Yes. It was a plan altogether. He didn't get framed. I don't think so either. They they wouldn't have had access to his house. Exactly. He wouldn't have texted their mom that, oh, hey, I buried a raccoon. Right. Exactly. (laughs) now emma says quote he was framed this is his property if there's bodies buried here it would be attributed to him i think it's pretty clear it was Lori and alex alex came and left for periods of time we don't know what exactly he was doing end quote that's true but their dad knew (laughs) i know and i don't i don't know if they like don't fully know all the texts he sent or if they didn't know that information yet it's just weird i mean he's the one that deemed them all zombies exactly and his kids also don't believe that he killed his wife tammy either but it is sad i mean you wouldn't want to believe that of your own parent i know it would be really hard and that like while i feel for them that they lost their mom and it would be so hard to accept that your dad is like this evil guy I think they're going to be super disappointed when Chad is convicted. I mean, and to me, the evidence is overwhelming. The red flags were there. And if you look at the whole picture, at all the evidence, this story really tells itself. It's sad for them. I know. It is sad for them. I hope that they, like, will realize one day because, I mean, their mom deserves for them to... (laughs) You know, like she deserves justice and that I feel like that's her kids also knowing. Yeah, but I hope that like people are kind to them and let them think what they want to think. Yeah. And, you know, it's yes. not their fault. 
So my heart breaks for all the people who got caught up in Chad and Lori's destruction. Charles explained them best when he called Lori a destroyer of families. They used their church of the firstborn and their religious beliefs to justify murdering anyone that got in the way of what they wanted. Though they preached to others that they were godlike, spiritual beyond what anyone could comprehend, they killed their own family members for two of the most basic motives that consume far too many people lust and money. Chad and Lori Daybell are two of the most self-serving evil people I've ever come across. Charlie. Hello. Should we tell the people why we didn't do a palate cleanser last week? Yes. Okay, where were we? At Disney World. We were at Disney World last week? Yeah. So we didn't get out a palate cleanser, huh? No. Tell them you're sorry. Because we had too much fun at Disney World. We had too much fun at Disney World? Yeah. Yes. So what was your favorite part about Disney World? Getting my dress and watching the, and watching from the castle lights because because the, the castle was beautiful and it was decorated from Christmas. Oh, what what dress did you get? What princess dress? Merida. Merida. I got Merida from the store at Disney World store. Was it so fun to be at Disney World? Yeah, and I couldn't get until the very, very end. And I've been begging for it. (laughs) What's the number one tip you are going to tell them that they should do at Disney World? What's the best thing they should do at Disney World if they go? Go on the rides. Go on the rides. What's the best ride? The pirate. The... the very, very ending one. Oh, the very end one? Yeah. We were on a mountain, huh? Yeah. We waited to go on Splash Mountain for an hour, and then the ride broke, huh? Yeah. So instead, we but went on the mountain that roller coaster was, That was going to be my last ride, but I like the other ride better. The roller coaster on the mountain. <laughs> All right. Tell them sorry you didn't do a power I like the pirate and and the... Uh, and the fast one. Those are my two favorite ones. Yeah. Okay. Tell them you won't miss another palate cleanser. I will not miss another palate cleanser. Bye. Bye-bye. Okay, guys. If you enjoyed our show today, please share this story with your friends and share our podcast onto your social media. If you haven't already and you have Apple Podcasts, go on there and leave us a five-star written review. I will literally be obsessed with you. If you have any case suggestions or personal stories, email them to me at truecrimeexposed at gmail.com. 
I want to do this little segment where we share your stories and your craziness. So if you have something to say that you want featured on the podcast, don't forget to email me. Follow us on social media for pictures and information on each case we cover. You can find us on Instagram at truecrimexpod, truecrimexpod, and you can find us on TikTok at truecrimexposedpodcast. This podcast is researched, written, hosted, and edited by me, Kayla Waters. It's co-hosted by my mom, Alicia Jenkins. The palette cleanser is given to us by Charlie Waters. And our original graphic art was done by Arthur Max. Our music was created by Jaden Schultz, and you can find him on Instagram at InPajamasMusic. Guys, if you visit Faces of Hope, you will find a one-stop triage and support center. They assist those who have experienced interpersonal violence. You can call them at 208-577-4400, and they're open Monday through Friday, 8 a.m. to 5 p.m. Their website is www.facesofhopevictimcenter.org. When you visit this website, you can gather information about their organization. You can see different events that they host that help their organization, and you can also donate. I encourage you to get involved. This is a organization out of Boise, Idaho, here in Idaho. So it's always great to get involved if you're local there. If not, I encourage you to go and donate. Bye, guys.